You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So, Father, in this morning hour, we thank you for drawing our hearts and minds together in worship, reminding us of our of our identity, of who we are, and of our need for you. And, Lord, I pray that you will help me this morning as the teacher, that you will give me grace and the power of your spirit to teach well and in accord with your word. And I pray that those who are here to listen, that you will open all of our hearts and minds uh, to what you will have to teach us. So we, we thank you that you stoop low in uh, the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to teach us in your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, come on in, all y'all out there. So this is a one-off class today, um, on, and I was told I could teach on anything I wanted, which is a dangerous thing, I think. Um, and I thought, well, how about we do... Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is the Shema. Now, I'll, let me tell you a little bit about my own um, upbringing, because my, my parents aren't here. Um, <clears throat> right, I'll, I'll say, I, I'm just back from Tampa, and we celebrated in Tampa my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. It was really, really a sweet time, actually, together, so I'm, I'm still sort of living off the, um, the gratitude of that, that moment. But anyway... Um, the, the Bible was central to my upbringing. Um, I, as many of you know, I, so I grew up in a very um, a, in the independent Baptist world. So to kind of give you a context for that, we thought Southern Baptists were liberals. I mean, does that kind of give you a sense of things? You know, so the smoking and drinking and dancing. I mean, these were the great vices. So I, I grew up in that world, and and you you know, going to my twenties and kind of re- react against that in a certain way. And of course, the pendulum can swing, and there's all kinds of problems with that as well. And, um, but now, you know, as I'm on the other side of the hump of forty, I you know, I look back on my upbringing and think about how grateful I am for that world, my ecclesial world. Um, and, and the kind of residual effect that that has had on me, and really sometimes a kind of critical reflection on myself and our own family about you know, what our own kids and, and how important some of these things are for them, all to say central to my upbringing was the Bible. I mean, the, and, and the world um, of independent churches that see themselves as autonomous from all other ecclesial um, identities um, tradition's a bad word. I actually think tradition's a good word when properly understood, but tradition's a bad word. And so what do you have? Well, you have the Bible. Um, and that's actually um, not completely bad. It's actually the right instinct. In fact, I was having a conversation with, with one of my children this week, and um, a, a hot topic issue came up. And, and I said, well, you know, the, the way in which the church through it, throughout its entire existence has addressed these kinds of complicated issues is, what does the Bible have to say? I mean, that, that's, that, that's a very important question, and it sounds, can sound strange in, a sort of, in the cultural milieu that we live in to say that, but we all know that, that that's at the core of Christian existence and a Christian approach to thinking through 
how to deal with various problems that arise in the life of the church. You go all the way back to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, and what do we do with these Gentiles who are being converted? And, and here's, here's the rest of the story, if I can quote you know, Paul Harvey on this. The rest of the story is the way they adjudicated these problems that were arising, because what do we do with Gentiles now, was by looking closely at the book of Leviticus. So here we have like the first council of the church, and they're wrestling with Leviticus to come to terms with um, what do we do now with Gentiles who are now in the, in, the, in the community of faith. So the church's instinct to wrestle with the Bible, uh, to come to terms with what the Bible has to say in this current moment, uh, with this particular issue that's facing the church, that, that's a very um, important and basic instinct. Am I ringing? I don't know what to do about that. Um, who, who knows how to do that? Ah, forget. You do? Thank you. Um, so so the, the, the point is, I, I do get nervous about this in our current ecclesial climate, frankly. Um, it's one thing to recognize that people within the life of the church will have different interpretations of the Bible. In other words, a, a, a reformational instinct to say the Bible is authoritative in all matters of life, of faith and practice, that, that's, that's an affirmation of faith that, that I think is central to Protestant identity. Um, but that's not to say that everyone is going to agree on their various interpretations of, of the Bible at, at particular moments. Welcome to denominational differences. I mean, they're, they're, I was just engaging a Methodist recently, and I'll, I mean, I hate to say this, but Method, I'm, I'm trained in the Reformation tradition, so, you know, Methodism has a, I mean, it, it can make me break out in hives. Don't tell anybody I said that, but it, it can. It can have that kind of effect on me. Um, and, I'm, and I'm having a kind of interaction, interaction with a thoughtful Methodist who's theologically robust and sound, and, you know, he's got some Bible on his side. This is the, po the point is, the reason why we have so many of these different denominational expressions is because people are wrestling with the Bible. But the point is, despite the differences, we're wrestling with the Bible and disagreeing with one another in the midst of that, but we're wrestling with the Bible. And I get nervous in, in our current ecclesial context and climate um, that that's not the basic instinct. Here's the, issue, the presenting issue of the day or the challenge of the day. Okay, there it is. How are we going to try to come to terms with that in some way? Answer, we're going to wrestle collectively with what the Bible has to say because what the Bible has to say on this in light of the received tradition of the church is authoritative for how we're going to, how we're going to order our life, our doctrine, and our, and our practice. That's a basic thing. And I, I'm grateful for kind of growing up in that world. Now, that was a lot of throat clearing to say something very simple. The first Bible verse I ever learned as a child was we love him because... He first loved us. That was my very first Bible verse. And we just finished a series on 1 John in, our, in, in church together. Um, and I thought, well, if you were to ask a young Jewish boy or young Jewish uh, woman in the first century world or even before that, let's say though in Jesus' time, and you were to say, tell us the first Bible verse you ever learned. I think the answer without doubt would be, and there would be a kind of univocal response from children of, of, of Jewish upbringing in the, in the first century world and before would be this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then the next verses, of course, go on to say, and you teach these things to your children day in and day out. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 
is, is traditionally known within Jewish circles as the Shema, uh, the Hebrew word for hear. Um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Hebrew word for hear is Shema. Um, and and that, that there are certain kind of epicenters, I think, in the Old Testament that I wouldn't want to reduce the Old Testament to these theological epicenters, but there are certain places in the Old Testament where the, the central claims of Old, of Old Testament doctrine and theology are found in these texts. Deuteronomy 6.4 is most certainly one of them. Exodus uh, 34, verses 6 and 7, where God uh, manifests himself on Mount Sinai and gives an exposition of his own name to Moses, the Lord, full of mercy, grace. He delivers his grace to the thousandth generation. Though that, that explanation of God's own name in Exodus 34, that is an epicenter. Genesis 1 through 3, an epicenter. So there are certain places that are central to kind of, or, or one might say nodal points that you, you hang your hat on in the Old Testament to say that's central for for us to understand what, what this whole thing is about. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it would be hard to think of a verse that would have a, a higher pride of place than this one. And so that's the verse we're going to wrestle with this morning, and I want to think about it with you um, in a couple of ways. So the first thing I want to do is do a kind of rough um, exposition, exegesis of the verse itself. And then I have three things that I want to talk about in light of that, some reflections, and, and then we won't have time for Q&A. Okay? <laughs> um, we'll try. Dave, you got the microphone, just in case. Okay. Uh, so can I read this to you here? Let's, let's put this in context. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules, uh, think the laws, that the Lord your God uh, commanded me to teach you. You know who's talking here, right? This is Moses. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to, pos to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land that will flow with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. So this is the beginning of the tradition of the Tephilim um, and the mezuzot that you find on the doors and, and the law being written on the head and the, on the arms. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on, on your gates. So here we have um, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, placed within a kind of catechetical context. This is a teaching context that Moses, you know, is on the plains of Moab, and they're about to enter into the promised land. And we also know that Moses does not get to go with them, but his law does go with them. So here's Moses on the plains of Moab, um, giving his, his final speech, his, his, his farewell address to the people of God as they're about to go into the land that God had promised them. And it had been a long journey to get to this moment, a long journey of a kind of com complicated and, and messy interaction between the relational character of God and his people. And here's Moses right here on the plains of Moab. They're looking down into the land of Canaan. They're about to go in and take it. And Moses says, here's my swan song for you. I'm always curious to hear what people say 
um, at the end of their lives. Um, I, I, when we were in Germany a few years ago, um, we spent a day in, I think it was Nuremberg. No, 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 no. It was Weimar where we were. We were three days in Weimar. And um, during one of the days when we had some free time, I, I walked to the Frederick Nietzsche house, which was kind of up the way. And um, Nietzsche apparently died in this home. And, and, uh, and his, it's called the Nietzsche Archive. So they have a lot of his papers there. And so I went and, and, uh, and was very disappointed by the experience, frankly, but I went anyway. And, um, but you, you'll remember like Frederick Nietzsche, the great um, sort of nihilist, I guess one might say philosopher, is more than that. He's a fascinating figure. But, you know, Nietzsche's apparently on his, had some brain issues and some dementia. And the, the last thing he did before he died was to sort of raise his fist to heaven, and then he died. Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to see what people say at their final. Thomas Cranmer is another one. You know, here, here, here Thomas Cranmer, who I love him because he, 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 he punted at the wrong time. He saw Ridley and Latimer um, burning at the stake, and he said, I don't think I'd like to do that. Um, and uh, so he recanted, and I mean, it, was, it was awful. And then, and then he recanted his recantation, and, and he goes to the fire. I mean, this is all documented as historical. And, and Cranmer throws his right hand into the flames. I mean, can you believe this stuff? Throws his right hand into the flames and says, you that offended, you burn first. Because um, that's when he signed the recantation. I mean, so how people die... Uh, making a good death, or, or at least what people say on their deathbed, is fascinating. This is Moses' deathbed speech. This is what he has to say. And what he wants to tell the people is he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, one more time. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, the, the law now in the second time. So Moses gave it on the front end of the Sinai, a wandering, and now on the back end of the wandering of Sinai, one more time he's going to give them the Ten Words, and he's going to apply it to their lives before they go in so that their lives can go well with them as they go into the promised land. Um, so it's interesting about Moses giving the law twice, the Ten Commandments twice. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about Gerald Bray. I, I was at, at a professional conference, um, I think it was in Boston, and they were doing a critical review of a, of a book that had just come out. I won't tell you the book, but the, it was a large edited volume, and they had some contributors up there, and they were doing a public critical review of this. And as the reviewers came through, one after another, they, they started to point out some significant shortcomings of the book. And you could see the editor. We're talking like 150, 200 people in the audience, you know. And you could see the editor of, of the volume on, on the stage, the sh shoulders kind of slumping a little bit more and more. As the, and the, the next person will come up. And here are three problems. You're like, oh, boy, this well, during the Q&A, Gerald Bray, who is, broke the mold, he stood up in front of all these people and he said to the editor, I won't say his name, but he said to the editor, listen, don't be discouraged. Even Moses had to go through a second edition. Um, <laughs> only Gerald Bray could say somebody to get away. So th this, is, this is the second edition, right? This is the, the, the edition, the critical edition before it goes off. Um, now, a few things about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I want to work through this with you. Hear, O Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we have this really fascinating description of, of God giving them the law. And this is what he said um, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse uh, 10. How on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, another name for Sinai, and the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. Okay, I'm taking this off. We have a new audio, so it must be. 
it's me. I, um, I, I'll, I'll project. My wife tells me that I'm a cell phone yeller, um, so I can, I can do this. Can you hear me back there, Brandon? Is it okay? All right. So here we go. A different sound now, but here, here it is. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. So the Lord God at Horeb, it's another name for Sinai, said to me, Gather the people to me that, they, that, that I may let them hear my words. And, and you'll notice, we won't get into this today, but it's a repeated refrain in Deuteronomy, so that they may teach their children also. And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire in the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. And I love this. There was only a voice. That was it. Um, this is, by the way, at the heart of what scholars will call the aniconic tradition in the Old Testament. In other words, God, the Father, cannot be represented in material form. He is, he is formless. He, he is he's immaterial in the sense of, of being able to be captured and possessed in any way. And of course, this is a large um, uh, polemical statement against the idolatrous tendencies of the nations around Israel in that Mesopotamian era. Um, God cannot be captured in any physical form. You didn't see anything when God gave you his, his, his law. All you heard was a voice. So this hearing thing about hearing the word of the Lord that we pick up in the New Testament as well, that is not something that's new and novel to the Apostle Paul when he says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. That's not a new and novel thought. That is something that's rooted in the Old Testament itself, that God comes to his people, and when he comes, he comes primarily as a voice to be heard, to be listened to. So that's when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and the Shema, why this language of hearing is so important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, of the Lord is one. Now this is going to get a little academic here, so hang on. Don't check out yet. The Hebrew word for one is... Um, do I have any of my students here? I was going to put them on the spot. Um, echad, right? So, uh, hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord, Echad. Could you have gotten that, Brandon? <laughs> this, the interpretation of Echad has generated reams of paper. All right, with people giving a sense of what does it mean for God, the Lord our God, that, that special personalized covenantal name, we might say Jehovah, Yahweh, um, the, what we, we call the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. What does the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what does that mean? And I, and I have to say, you know, just kind of lay my own cards on the table, I think it could probably mean many things both at the same time, and that's okay, now, we tend to think of oneness in terms of singularity of being. Um, and that's okay. I think that's, that's a fine reading. And I would say the tradition of the church has tended to read it that way. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He can't be multiplied. I mean, he can't be divided. The singularity of God is that, and you've got to think, this is, it's hard going here when you start talking about God theologically. There are, there are dragons around that you can get bitten by. But when you talk about the singularity of God and God's attributes, the way in which we talk about God as loving 
as wise, as just and severe, as merciful, as omniscient, knowing all things, as omnipotent, he's everywhere. We talk about these attributes in such a way as to make distinctions between them. And we have to so that we can say anything about God that corresponds to who he is. But we all need to remember, because of the singularity of God's being, that God is his attributes, all of them equally at the same time. It allows us to look at God fully from different vantage points, but to place, for example, God's severity, His judgment, over against His mercy, as if those are two competing factions of God's being, is to really run afoul of the singularity of God and God's being. So we can talk about God being one. He he is singular. He's indivisible. And I think that's a fine reading, and it's the traditional reading. Another reading, though, and I think this is probably more to the intention of what's going on here, canonically, is to think of the term echad, or oneness, not necessarily in terms of singularity of being, I'm okay with that, but read in this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. None other. There's no God but Him. In other words, the Shema here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, ties itself materially into the first two commandments of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you'll not make any god out of any graven image that you will bow down and worship. So that when Moses is telling them here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, he's making a claim to exclusive loyalty to Israel's God and Israel's God alone. Now that is at the heart of what it means within Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, to love God. What does it mean to love God? Because that's what comes right after this. The Lord our God, the Lord alone, Him alone and no others, and you shall love the Lord your God. That's the very next line. And what does it mean here to call us to love the Lord our God? It's tethered, it's linked to God's aloneness, His uniqueness, Um, His claim to loyalty from His people. To love God is to be loyal to God and to God alone. And what do we find in the Old Testament from beginning to end? I'm going to turn back to this at the end of our time together. But from beginning to end, we see in Israel's history an elongated and complex history of Israel as God's people wrestling with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. What does it mean for God to be alone, no other? And what does it mean to give our loyalty exclusively to Him and no other God? If you want to talk about holy war in the Old Testament, the holy war that's waged from beginning to end in the Old Testament is a holy war against idolatry. I I would say even some of the more... Um, grading and difficult aspects, ethically speaking, to come to terms with the Old Testament, whether it's holy war, whether it's on the far side of the exile, Ezra telling the people that they had to break off their marriages with foreign wives. I mean, there are some parts of the Old Testament that you're like, boy, I kind of wish that wasn't in there, and I'm glad I don't have to say thanks be to God on Sunday morning when you know when it's right, because of course our lectionary dumps all the hard stuff. You know, self page anyway. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so what, what does one, one do with these? Well, uh, you know, well, that's a whole other lesson, and they, they, they raise their own kind of challenges. But don't forget that central to all of those challenges is the great nemesis of Israel's relationship to her God, and that is idolatry. 
That's the nemesis. And the danger is present from beginning to end. Now, I'm going to talk about idolatry a lot in our concluding part, in part B of this morning's lesson. But just to kind of put it out front and central, idolatry and the danger of idolatry, the danger of swapping out Israel's God, the God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for a false God, a false deity, has been with the people of God from its inception. And it's with us too. We are not in any way, uh, we cannot in any way escape that challenge and the threat of idolatry in our own lives as well. And I'll come back to that in a second. So what does it mean to love God? It means to give love, God, uh, loyal love, loyalty to God. It binds the subject to the object. And then um, Moses goes on to describe what this love looks like. So you love the Lord your God, how? With all your heart, with all your soul, and then with all your might. I'm just going to give a sort of quick um, exposition to this and then we'll move on. What is the heart? Well, I think the heart in the Old Testament is understood primarily as the location of our mind and our understanding. We tend to think of it as the seat of our affections. I think that's the next thing when he talks about all of our soul. That, I think, is when we move to our affections. I think here, um, Moses is calling us to um, a, a kind of ascent of the mind and the intellect to all that God is. With all of your mind, with all of your understanding is another way of, of, of presenting this. We love God with all of our thinking capacities. And linked to that is loving God with all of our affections as well. Now, I'll tell you, the translation and understanding what it means to say to love God with all of our soul is a bit of a challenge. Um, the Hebrew term is nephesh. It's, it's a slippery term in the Old Testament. Um, for example, it can mean neck. It can mean life. Um, within the Jewish and rabbinic reception of, of the Shema, this is often understood as a call toward a willingness to die. For God, a call toward a willingness to be a martyr. In other words, the call here is with all of your life, with all of your being, even up to the point where you say, my love for God, my loyalty to God is a loyalty that will lead it to death. And I should say, there's something really to be wrestled with there. Because you can see very early in the life of the church, with those who are preparing for their baptisms, that the large question that was being asked by many people as they prepared for their baptisms was this, is this a faith that you are willing to live for and willing to what? To die for. Because that was a very real threat um, in, in certain moments in the early church. So that's a possible rendering or at least extrapolation of what this all your soul means. I, I think of, of, of maybe an easier, not easier, but a better way of understanding this would be to say all of our soul means um, complete and full devotion. It's not just an intellectual ascent, but it's also an ascent of our affections, um, uh, our, our, our feeling capacity. God wants your mind and he wants your heart. Um, and I think, you know, I'm in theological education, so I, I think about this all the time because I, I live in a world where we do a lot of heady things. And theologians, and maybe I've, I've fallen prey to this this morning, but theologians can be the worst at giving... Um, such beautiful uh, mysteries and uh, the doctrine of the gospel of God and his triune being in such horribly boring ways. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I, mean you, I was, you know, just pick a theology book off the shelf and start reading. Um, I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a challenge to think through how, and I think, by the way, the church is where this is worked out, how 
to relate necessarily um, hard thinking for God, the, the best thinking for God. And I've, I've tried to talk this way with my kids because, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the exchange, in the public realm of intellectual life in American culture, I mean, it's, it's not theologians aren't the ones who are in that conversation today. There's some very smart people that you see on TV all the time, and, and, and that, that can have its own kind of attraction uh, to, to young people. And I try to remind my kids, just so you know, for, for the history of at least Western civilization for a couple thousand years, the greatest minds have been the Christian theologians, or at least some of them, not all of it. The Christian theologians have been some of the greatest minds. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, I mean, this, this, this man's capacity, the capaciousness of his mind knew no limits, it seems like. Um, so to think hard after Jesus, is, after God, is not to be thought of in contradistinction from feeling deeply for him. And I, and I think all of us probably line up on one of, those, one of those paths more than the other. I like to think hard for Jesus. I like to think hard about him. But the, the feeling side of it or the, the affection side, that makes me get a little bit nervous. Or I'm all about the affection. I mean, I, I, I get all about you. Let me talk to you about Jesus. And I, I can just get real um, sentimental fast. Um, but thinking hard about him, theology, wrestling with that whole Trinity stuff, atonement, I don't care. I just, we not follow And here, right in the heart of Old Testament thought, right in the heart of the Bible, is Moses telling us that God wants all of your mind and he wants all of your affections. Psalm chapter 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, uh, let us praise his holy name. All that, all that makes me a human being, Paul is, I mean, uh, Moses is telling us right here that God wants that from us, exclusively for him. He's the ultimate good that deserves the best of our thinking and the best of our feeling. Now I'm going to give you a translation of the last part of this this verse in Deuteronomy 6 is maybe a little bit different than, and it's, a, it's trouble, it's, this is difficult. All, your, all of your uh, uh, heart, with all your soul, and then all the translations say with all of your might. Um, this is tough, and I, I hate to do this because it sounds like a kind of will to power move with the knowledge of biblical languages, and I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, but this, this term here is, is used like twice in the Old Testament. And it's used as a noun here. But it's more often than not used as an adverb, um, and it's the a term uh, "meod," which we would which we would translate in most contexts as "very surely." So, if you were to to toss this adverbial uh, term into a sentence, we would say, "We say something." I love my wife. Um, if I ta- if I toss "meod" in there, I would say, "I surely love my wife. I really, really love her." Something like that. And I think that's probably the best way to understand what Moses is doing here. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of the thinking capacity of your mind, with all of your intellectual rigor. Think hard after him. And with all of your affections, with all that makes you internally filled with passion, your passions and your intellect, give God all of that really. Uh, verily. Uh, summarily. Um, However you can describe it, all of it uh, belongs to the Lord. Now, I'm going to come back uh, to Raptavia and Fiddler on the Roof in a second. Um, 
but I, I love, I, I need to watch, I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I, I would go through like a, a biannual fiddler on the roof moment and, s- and subject my children to at least watch it up to the intermission. Um, and one of my favorite scenes in there is, um, you know, in Raptavi, he's, he's, he's in the little barn and he's, and he's tossing the corn around and he's singing, If I Were a Rich Man. You know this one, right? If I Were a Rich Man, yeah, da, 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 that part, I used to sing so. Um, there's a part, so the whole song is goofy and it's silly, and, and, but it gets serious at one moment. And if you remember this moment, this is the moment when he stops, he gets pensive, and he says, and the best part, if I were a rich man, was that I could be freed from all of my work so that I could spend all day with the rabbis studying God's word. And then he goes back to being silly again. Um, that's the Shema. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a recognition that deep down in the core of what makes us who we are, we want to give all of it in loyalty um, to God because we know that there are so many things in our lives and in the surrounding culture that are screaming out for that kind of loyalty from us. There are all kinds of things that are screaming out for that from us. All right, so with our time left, which is none, I wanted to talk about Three things, and if I had to skip one, that's no problem. So here's some reflections for you on the Shema, for us to chew on through the week. Number one, loyalty in the Old Testament, loyalty to the covenant, is the fertile soil in which genuine love grows, or in which affection grows. Let me say that again. Loyalty to the covenant itself is the fertile soil in which love, even the kind of love we think of as both affection and commitment, both the will and the affection, the soil that creates a fertile love is the soil of loyalty. And I'll say this, and not necessarily the reverse. In fact, let me be more definitive, not the reverse. Love, if you think of that in terms of feeling and will, I've committed myself to someone, um, or, or feeling primarily. That is, that is not the fertile soil to, in, to um, engender lifelong loyal commitments. It's the loyalty itself that provides for us the potential for genuine uh, commitment to, to, to the other. Um, and this, this pertains to our relationship with God, um, and it pertains to our relationships with one another, especially marital relationships. What sustains a relationship long-term? Is it the affection? Is it what Soren Kierkegaard called romantic love? Children's love? That's what he called that. I mean, what we might call sort of a popularized version of love. What we got to see in... Well, I was going to make fun of the royal wedding. I shouldn't do that. Sorry. Um, But what gets us all excited about that? Is that what sustains a lifelong relationship? Or is it the loyal commitment itself that sustains the affections when they wane and go and when they come and are robust and strong. Um, can I do Raptavia one more time? So here's my last filler on the roof illustration. You remember um, he and his wife are alone in the house and one of the girls are about to get married. And this is the great you know, tension of the, of, the, of, the, of the play, of the movie, is um, the girls want to marry for love. His daughters want to marry for love. He's like, love? What's, you know, what is this? Um, and so, but it dawns on him. He's like, well, I'm, I've been married for a long time. And then it goes to this beautiful um, uh, recitative and then duet between Raptavi and his wife, Do You Love Me? 
Uh, do you love me? Do you love me? Da 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 da. And and how does the wife respond? I love this. Well, what do you mean? Do I love you for 25 years? I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. If I can put this in terms of what we're talking about this morning, for 25 years I've shown you complete loyalty. Never left. Been here. Uh, you've always known I'm going to be here. Um, and so is that love? And then the, how does the song end? They sit on their bed together, and she says, "Well, then I guess I do love you." Right. Now. Um, there's, 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 that's very unmodern, by the way. Um, but it's very beautiful, isn't it? Because it's loyalty to the relationship itself that sustains the other and provides the fertile soil for the romantic, effective side of what it means to be in a relationship with the ones that we love. That sustains it, not, not the other. And I, you know, I've, I, my wife and I have told this to each other a lot, and um, I'm so grateful that she's committed to the um, the covenant relationship, um, it's, it's, or, or it'd be over. Um, I'm joking. Um, and and we tell and we tell young we tell young people who are about to get married, and we'll, this is kind of a mantra that we tell them whenever we get the opportunity to. Your commitment to the covenantal marriage itself is really more important than your commitment to that person. Um, and I, and I, I joke with my wife and I joke about this all the time. I've, I've been married to five different women um, all, and all the same one. I mean, um, and, sh- and the same for her with me. I mean, I, who, who knows what iterations coming next year? I don't know. Um, but, but the relationship is still, it's still there. The second thing I wanted to say is this. Um, we live with the constant danger of other gods. Now, I read this in the, in, the, in the class that I did on the parables, but I'm going to read it here for you, and then, and then we'll be done. This is what Martin Luther said in his catechism on the Ten Commandments about what makes God and an idol. Can I read this to you? As I have often said, that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. And I want to say this, because I have been reflecting on this issue a lot over the past few weeks because of the, the idolatry of my own heart. Um, there is no spiritual nirvana on this side of our earthly sojourn. In other words, we will never get to the place on this side, and I wish we did. And I have to tell you, there was a point in my own spiritual life as a young Christian where I thought this was the case and really aimed toward it. A sort of spiritual nirvana that could lift me up out of um, uh, the potential woes of what any relationship with another human being will bring, whether it's in a business world, whether it's in your community, whether it's within your family, whatever. Um, I wanted to be released and detached from that. Um, And it will not happen. On this, there is no spiritual nirvana. So, what does this mean? That means that we will never stop wrestling with the danger of idolatry until the day that we die. Because if there's anything that we know experientially from the from the patterns of our own existence, and from the claims that the Bible itself makes about human existence, we pine after some god. We want a god. We want something to worship. And we will, we will, like children, sort of scrape at things to find something that can give us some kind of momentary release from the tensions that we live in in this world. Um, and what that is, 
is good old-fashioned idolatry. And I struggle with it in the silliest of ways. I mean, if I began to list for you, if I told you what I've been wrestling with over the past two weeks in this area, you would, some of you would pull me aside and say, you need to get a grip. Um, and you are right. I do. Um, and that's why my idol's not yours. You know, you know this is, this is, this is, there's not a sort of, I can't sort of list them out for you, but it's that one thing that you hold on to, whether it's a dream, whether it's an ambition, whether it's, whether it's a, a relationship, that one thing that you hold on to in such a way as to say, if that were gone, if this weren't here anymore, then my reason for existence would cease to be. And if you think that that's not a struggle that you will have for the rest of your life, then, boy, let, please write a book and I'll read it. Um, because we cannot escape that. An idol and God are the same thing, according to Luther. They both want our confidence, our faith. And I'll, I'll press Luther on this and go one further. And they want our affections. I mean, what's the thing that really makes you happy? And I'll tell you, and again, I want to be careful here because I don't want to give a kind of broad, you know, my, our experiences are different with these things. But I can, I can feel it in my own life. Where self-love and the idolatry of the, my own heart leads to an existence that's marked and identified as angsty, irritable, frustrated, not. And remember what Paul tells us in Galatians. What's the gospel meant to do for us? It's meant to make us free, right? Free from the tyranny of self-love free from the, from the fear of others. Why? So that we can love God and our neighbor. And I know that when I am nursing and I'm petting that one idol or whatever it is that I'm holding on to and it's making me miserable, I know the last word in the world that can be predicated on me at that moment is freedom. I am not free. I am a hostage. I am in bondage. So, where does this leave us? It leaves us, driving us again to the good news of the gospel. Why I love Deuteronomy 6.4 so much is because Deuteronomy 6.4 is placed in a kind of liturgical context. There's a reason why you came to church this Sunday morning. There's a reason I know I needed to come this Sunday morning. Because it's in this frame together, this liturgical frame together of worshiping life together that we get to get reoriented. And here's the, the word that you're all waiting for because it's the word that's so central to this. We get to repent again. We get to turn again. There's no spiritual nirvana, but there is a life of continued repentance where we know my heart, oh God, my heart is nursing this thing. And I can't escape it, but I'm turning myself over to you because I want freedom from myself and the tyranny of the idols that I want so badly for you and for others. So what does it mean to love God with all our heart and soul and mind? It means to give our loyal mind and intellect and affections to him. And how do we do it? only because we're in Christ and in the hope of the gospel and we get to do it again and again and again and again. So Lord, help us as we think through the ways in which this very important verse, um, you quoted this verse multiple times in your own earthly ministry, Jesus, that you would show us, Lord, the freedom that comes, the true freedom that comes when we are released from the idolatry of self-love and the various things, the good things, Lord, that we take and turn them into ultimate things. So give us the gift and the grace of repentance today, knowing that we'll need it again tomorrow. 
because we want our loyalty and our affections to be for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.